0: Good morning, Grace Orange. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We'll be focusing on verse 30 today. How salvation in Christ is 100% secure. 100% secure. The golden chain of salvation, part 3. We'll be looking at verse 30. I want to ask you to stand with me as I read God's word. And I will read the three verses I've been reading the last several weeks. Romans 8 verses 28 to 30. It's a privilege to open up the Bible and to read the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, for these magnificent gospel truths that you give us to encourage our hearts. That we would rejoice in you, that we would trust in you and lord we pray that you would have your way in our hearts now all for your glory we pray in jesus name amen please have a seat the capitolini museum in rome has a large stone slab once a part of a first-century gravestone that stood by a busy roadside just outside the city limits. And the inscription reads like this, "...the monument of Lucius Vitenius Musa Campister, place of rest for those tired of life, exhausted by a life conducted in many different regions..." Tranquility welcomes him to a deathly abode. Death is released from wealth and poverty. For nature forces both rich and poor to live in anxiety. Nature, it says, forces both rich and poor to live in anxiety. That is a sad testimony of a rich man who lived in anxiety. Lucius could have lived in 2018. Like so many today, rich or poor, it looks like he ran himself ragged trying to survive life, inevitable anxiety and suffering. There is a certain amount of insecurity embedded in the soul of everyone who does not trust in Jesus Christ. Here was a man, Lucius, rich enough to afford a beautiful engraved public monument, but his wealth brought him no more freedom from the troubles of life than if he were poor. And like many in his own time, he thought that death brought annihilation, that death brought annihilation from existence and there was nothing after that and you were just getting released from the worry of life in an unfriendly world. And so it's no wonder that the gospel took such deep root in first century hearts, and no wonder that the gospel continues to take such deep root in hearts today. This gospel hope that is so clearly explained in Romans chapter 8 was amazingly good news for people with Lucius' understanding of life. This powerful message is for us today as well. Romans eight thirty says those whom God predestined he called and those he called he justified and those he justified he glorified and this is monumental hope for the insecure that salvation is fully secure in Jesus Christ I'm going to keep repeating that main point all morning long salvation is fully secure in Jesus Christ In verses 29 and 30, we have been seeing these these links in salvation's golden chain. We've seen two already of the five, foreknowledge and predestination. And then we've got calling, justification, and glorification. And by the way, if these verses were to include all the things we see in the Bible of how God saves a person, theologians have called it the ordo salutis, the order of salvation, it would have foreknowledge... And predestination and calling, but it would also have regeneration, faith, repentance. It would have justification, but it would also have adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and then it would end with glorification. What Paul is doing in verse 30 is he's summing up a chain of verbs that have been linked together. And he is giving what is needed to to fill the chronological gap between God's decision to love and save Christians and the actual events happening in real time a bit of review in verse 29 we saw two actions God took in choosing us before he saved us before we existed foreknowledge was the first that believers are foreknown by God he knew us beforehand he decided To set his love upon every believer in a saving way. This brings us confidence in God. This brings us rejoicing in our hearts that God did this for us. The Hebrew for foreknew is yada, it means to know intimately. And so, verse 29 told us that those whom God foreknew, he predestined. It's those, it's people, it's personal those whom God foreknew. It doesn't say what he foreknew. It says he foreknew us intimately, so we love him because he first loved us. He set his love on individual sinners. This should bring so much comfort to you if you're a believer that you would say, wow, God is so personal, God is so loving that he would choose me specifically. And by the way, all five golden chains are sovereign works of God. All all five golden links in this chain are sovereign works of God, which further confirms that foreknowledge deals with God's actions, not man's work, not man's belief. This is to praise the glory of God's grace in Christ. It moved on to predestination. The believers are predestined by God. He chose us beforehand. He emphatically resolved to choose Us for his particular purposes. Predestination speaks of the goal of God's electing work. He he put his personal foreknowledge into effect. One writer put it this way. Election and predestination is God's absolute act of free love. God's absolute act of free love, which is grounded totally in himself. And there was nothing apart from him which gave his will direction. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works all things after the counsel of his will. God did not consult with us. God consulted with himself. And I would put it simply this way. If you have a relationship with God today through Jesus Christ, it's because God chose a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. He chose to have a relationship with you. He is personal. Many people Uh, Believe in a God who is impersonal and unloving. God, as the Bible portrays him, is personal. He loves you and he personally chose you in Christ if you're a Christian. Then as we have seen, God then grows the family resemblance in those he has chosen so that Christ is exalted. If you're a believer, the family resemblance is going to show. You're going to have love for other believers. You're going to have love for God first and foremost. And then you're going to want to live to the praise of God's glory. That your whole life is going to be tuned, is going to be focused on the preeminence of Christ and and how he is to have first place in everything. The Bible teaches that no one can acknowledge the lordship of Christ except by the Spirit of God indwelling them, only believers can do this. And so, verse 30 begins this way those whom God predestined. Let's do a little bit more word analysis here because I really want you to know this. I'm, I'm very excited about this. I, you know, we look at the Bible and we say, What does it say? What does it mean? And what should we do about it? What should we do as a result? So as we see what the Bible says and what it means, it causes us to rejoice in Christ. Romans 8 is all about assuring believers of their salvation in Christ. The word for predestined is the Greek word prorizo. It comes from two words, pro, which means before, and horizo, which means to determine a boundary or a limit. That's where we get our word Horizon. It's you know, God's boundary between heaven and earth. So literally, parizzo means to mark out beforehand or set the limits or boundaries in advance of anything. Parizzo means to put limitations on a person to literally set their destiny. This is what this word means. Parizzo means to plan in advance. It's always used of God in the New Testament. Plan in advance. It's a decree of God where he determined in advance something would happen in your life. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30 says that God's predestined the believer destiny. There's a glorious future that God lays out for us where we will be conformed to the image of his son in glorification. Parizzo used of God in the New Testament. He is, you can put it this way, he is the supreme historian. You know, what we do is we, we see how life goes, And then a historian writes down what happened, right? God is the supreme historian. He wrote history before it began. He wrote history before it began. He wrote all of history before it began. Predestination is a wonderful doctrine. It brings you comfort. It brings you encouragement. It brings you thankfulness for what God has done. I want to give you a word of encouragement on this. Let's say you you say, I really struggle with certain Bible doctrines like this. Well, good, that proves you're not God. He doesn't struggle with this, okay? So it proves that we're not God. We struggle with Bible doctrines. Some things are really hard to understand. We'll say this, I find it hard to try and figure them out. Yeah, because we're not God. We have finite minds. You might even say, I find it hard to reconcile with other things I see in the Bible. And all I can tell you is that the Bible is consistent with itself. It does not contradict itself. And I want to say that if you struggle with this, God can handle your struggle. God can handle your questions and your confusion because God wants you to have the most assurance possible in your relationship with Christ. This is why we have these verses, so that believers would have the most assurance possible that their salvation in Christ is 100% secure. This is reason to praise God. God. He wants you to have the most assurance possible. And so when you get to teachings like this, the Bible means something really good for believers when it explains to us what God was doing behind the scenes and what he has done for us. And even if you doubt it, you're like, this is great. God can handle my doubts. God can handle my questions. He knows what he's doing in and through your life. He knows you. He knows how he's going to use truth to transform your heart. And some things in the Bible are hard to understand. But God has put us in the family of, of God, in, in the body of Christ, so that fellow believers can learn and grow in their understanding of the word together. And Ephesians 1.5 tells us that God predestined us to adoption as sons. We're put into the family of God through Jesus Christ to himself. And it was according to the kind intention of his will. His will is so kind. His will is so loving. In Ephesians 1.11, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, the other thing you need to understand, that I mentioned last week, is this does not absolve anyone of their responsibility before God for their sin and for their choices. And Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 is a perfect example of this, where you have human responsibility and God's sovereignty side by side in the same context with no hint of a problem. Acts 4, 27. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. So Jesus' adversaries did what God planned beforehand. And God didn't force them to engage in heinous sin and acts of violence against Jesus, against their will. They took full responsibility. They made the choice to do that. And God allowed them to conspire against jesus to accomplish salvation so having done their worst they fulfilled god's eternal plan and so you have human responsibility and god's sovereignty in the same context with no hint of a problem augustus strong in his 1907 systematic theology tells a story of roland hill who was criticized for preaching election and that and also exhorting sinners to repent. And he was told, you need to only preach to the elect. And he replied that if his critic would put a chalk mark on all the elect, you know, like mark them with a sharpie so I know, then I will preach only to the elect. But only God knows who the elect are. You preach the gospel to everyone. Those who will believe will believe. 2 Corinthians 2, I love this, and and I I, I encourage a lot of believers with this often. 2 Corinthians 2 says that for the believer who's in the world, but not of it, in the world, and you're in your neighborhood, and you're in your workplace, and you're in your school, and you're in all the places that God sends you, in your daily operation, and a believer who is loving the Lord Jesus, and wanting to get the gospel out, living the gospel, and speaking the gospel appropriately as as opportunities arise, God says that that he manifests the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. This diffuser of the knowledge of God. And it says that for those who are perishing, we are the, the aroma of death. We are the stench of death. But for those who are being saved, we are the aroma of life. Only God knows. Only God knows. And our minds are finite. We cannot comprehend the infinite character and plan and purpose of God. We cannot fully comprehend it with our minds. But here's what we can do. What we can do is believe and rejoice with our hearts that God has known us and chose us for himself before the world ever began. This is what the Bible tells us. So when it comes to predestination, we we want to have the most God-centered view because God does, and the Bible does. And so verse 30 starts with this. Those whom he predestined, But now, as we move on through verse 30, you see a third link in the golden chain of salvation. You see calling. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And really, I love this because it's in order to understand the golden chain of salvation, in order to understand what God has been doing, we have to keep going back to Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. Because this tells us that God is using all things together for his salvation purposes in the life of believers, that it assures us of God's eternal purposes for us in Christ. He's giving us assurance in Romans eight twenty eight of his elaborate orchestration of all the parts and all the times and places and people and, and his eternal love with which he loved us. And, and his effective call. This is what we're looking at here. His calling. His essential plan. His calling. This is where God enables, quickens the, the dead, who, the spiritually dead. This is, this is the idea that those whom God calls in this way always get saved. That those who are called with the Romans 8.28 and 8.30 call always get saved. Those whom he predestined, he also called. So it's not just an invitation that humans can reject. Because we give out the, hum- the, the gospel call, we give that out, and humans reject it often. But this calling in verse 30 and also in verse 28 is this. It's a God-given summons that overcomes your resistance and effectively persuades you to say yes to God. And verse 30 makes this clear. Those whom he called, he also justified. It doesn't tell us that some of those called were justified. What it does is it fuses the called and the justified together. Those who have experienced calling have also received the blessing of justification. And if all those who are called are justified, then calling must be effective, must be effectual, and must create faith. All those who are called are justified, and justification can't occur without faith. I want you to go back to Romans chapter 1. Go to the very beginning of Romans. In verse 7, when Paul is addressing this letter, Here is who he is addressing it to. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Loved by God and called to be saints. So the Greek text is giving us knowledge of privileges that believers have. God set his love on his own. We're beloved. We've been foreknown. We've been predestined. And then he has extended to them not only the general call, like the external invitation to believe the gospel that you hear from someone, but his effectual calling, an internal drawing to himself all of those he has chosen for salvation. And I want to make sure we understand the Bible's usage of, of different kinds of calling, really. What kind of calling is being described here in verse Thirty, as well as verse 28. Because the Bible refers to two kinds of calling. It's really easy to get them confused. One kind of calling is external, you could put it that way, or general, you could also say universal in the sense that everyone is supposed to receive this call. We need to go to all nations with the gospel. This is the open invitation that is given when someone Preaches the gospel proclaims the gospel and it's that open invitation that goes Should go to all people to repent of their sins to turn to the lord jesus christ and be saved believe in the lord jesus and you will be saved This is what jesus was getting at when he said come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest Matthew eleven twenty eight. This is what jesus was getting at in john seven thirty seven. if anyone is thirsty Let him come to me and drink well, here's what we know. Left to ourselves, we would never respond positively to the gospel call. We would hear the gospel call, but we would turn away and prefer our own way and not God's way. This is why Jesus said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's key. He draws him. This is the kind of call that is being explained in Romans 8.30. This other kind of call, this, you could call it internal, you could say it's very specific and very effective, very effectual. So you get the invitation from someone, or maybe you read it in the Bible, but then God gives you the ability and the willingness to respond to the gospel call positively. God draws you to himself. I remember soon after I became a believer, I had read these kind of words about God drawing us to himself. And I said, God drew me to himself. He, he convicted me of my sin. I heard the gospel over and over again. And God had to take a sledgehammer to my stony heart. And I, 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 I repented of my sins. I wanted Jesus. I wanted to be saved. Well, before that, I didn't want to be saved. Not by Jesus. I thought I could do that myself. I used, I've told you this before. I used to make fun of Christians when I was in high school. So it's not only the invitation, but God gives you the ability and the willingness to respond to the gospel and believe. God draws you to himself and brings to spiritual life the one who, without that call, would remain spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but God made us alive. So this is the John 6 father drawing us. And by the way, God's call in the New Testament almost every time refers to God's call to salvation. There's only a few times when it, when it isn't. In fact, one of them is Matthew 22, verse 14. Speaking of the general call of God, his command to believe in the Lord Jesus, the gospel call that goes out to all people and is often rejected, Matthew 24, 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, that's the universal call of the gospel, you are chosen that's the word eklektos it's, it's the effective call of the elect so the chosen of Matthew 22:14 are the called of Romans 8:28 and 8:30 so god's call here in Romans 8 is his work in bringing unbelievers to faith this is the majority usage of the term called and call in the new testament It's not the open invitation calling everyone to repent and believe in Jesus. It's the effective call of God. And what does it do? What does this call do? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says God speaks light into darkness. And life to the dead. Life to the dead. And by the way, we are all believers. All believers are commanded by God to preach the gospel to all people. And you might go your whole life, maybe, let's say you go 20 years of, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel, and you can't can't see anyone that has responded. You're like, I guess I'm just no good at this. But that's not the truth. The truth is you were faithful to the call. This is the call to to preach the gospel, to proclaim the gospel to all creation. And, And you're commanded to do this. And so your obedience to the call is what brings God glory, even if no one believes God knows. And we know this of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. The Holy Spirit causes the unbeliever to be born again, regenerated. And so the call is the effectual call because at this point, God brings you to that point, you cannot resist it. This is what's known as irresistible grace. Calling is a part of God's work of saving people. Believers are called by the human proclamation of the gospel, and effectively called by God. Now, I know that we use the term called a lot, and it's not a bad thing to use the term called, but we do need to know, sometimes we use it in ways that are not biblically accurate, and so it's important for us to talk about that a little bit, okay? I might say, God called me to go do this, okay? And at the heart of that, I want you to know that I want my idea, my choice to be validated. I really believe God wants me to do this. But as as time goes on, it might be shown to be true that it's maybe just I wanted to do that and God redirects me because that's not really the thing he wanted me to do. And the idea is this. We use this term called a lot. It's not wrong to use it, but it's not always biblically accurate. We want our choices to be validated. So we say God told me, God called me, Uh, More accurate might be, God's leading me, or, you know, think about the Macedonian call. We call call it the Macedonian call in the book of Acts. Um, So they, they, they they see a vision of someone saying, come over here to Macedonia and help us. And we concluded that God wants us to preach the gospel to them. That means they had a compelling sense of God's leading to go do this. When you use the word call primarily in the New Testament, it's God calling you to salvation. And we want to be really clear. We're going to use these terms a lot, and it's okay to say God called me as long as you mean God gave me a desire to do this. I say this to people all the time who are seeking advice. Love Jesus and do as you please. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the idea there is that as you're delighting yourself in the Lord, as you're loving the Lord first and foremost, you're going to be wanting to do what pleases God. He's going to be inspiring you to do what pleases Him. I think there's no greater biblical illustration of effectual calling than Paul's conversion story, his conversion to Christ in Acts chapter 9. Here you've got a Paul who is literally fighting against God with every ounce of his being, going in completely the opposite direction of where God would want him to go. He's got permission to throw Christians in jail, He agrees with their death, and he's on the way to to fight against the church. And God literally, no pun intended, God literally knocks him off his high horse, off his arrogance. And basically, here's how God described him. He is a chosen instrument of mine to take my name to the Gentiles, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. This is how God calls those whom he has foreknown and predestined to salvation. Probably not as dramatically as that in most of our lives. But God, knowing everything about you before you existed, chose you from before the foundation of the world to be saved by the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That is true about you if you are a believer today. One way you can put this is that entering the Christian life is like going through an archway. And as you approach from the outside, there is an open invitation. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. And then after you enter, you look back and you see over the inside the word chosen before the foundation of the world. Both are equally true at the same time. All are invited by the gospel call. And those who who come, those who believe, learn later that their response and even their resulting perseverance has been granted by God's grace, entirely by the grace of God. And if it were any other way, we wouldn't persevere in the sufferings of this present time. Remember in the context, Paul is contrasting the sufferings of this present time as not being worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed. Glorification, glory, the last link in the golden chain, is the theme of Romans 8.18 to Romans 8.30 all about our future glorification so calling is really you could put it this way too it's the point at which the things that god determined beforehand in his own mind passes over into real time okay some of you are like i got saved on this day in in this year and you know the exact day and even time that you got saved me i've got a a three-month swath in 1982 early 1982 but it's the point in time which the things determined beforehand in the mind of God pass over into time. That what He decreed in eternity becomes actual in time. The point where eternal foreknowledge of some and predestination of those to salvation gets very concrete because you know you just got saved. And by calling us to faith in real time, we're saved. Then you know I'm now a believer. I believe the gospel. I believe what God did. I'm trusting in Jesus and not my own works. Which leads us to the next link in God's great chain of saving acts, justification, which we know pretty well in terms of what we've been through in Romans already, in Romans chapter 3 especially. God's grace... And the effectual call is irresistible and results in the justification of the person called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And so it comes after calling in this list of God's actions, always connected with faith and belief. So through God's call, faith is brought into being. God's call creates or quickens faith. It's the call of God that brings forth spiritual life of which faith is the very first true evidence or proof. And we know this, that the Bible doesn't say we're saved by our faith. We are saved by grace. Faith is not something that we contribute. We are saved through faith. And God creates faith in us before we can be justified. Our our faith is from God as a gift. Ephesians 2 tells us this. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith, And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not not as a result of works so that no one can boast. Now, I remember when I first became a believer, I thought I had done something very significant in the transaction. I chose to believe. Because at that moment in time, all I knew were my own thoughts. I didn't know what the Bible said about God's actions on my behalf. So this tells us what God did in choosing us and saving us in real time he justified us. You find out what's going on. You find out what God was doing. but Then you find out what God is going to do in terms of glorification, and it thrills your heart. Here's what justification is. It's the gracious gift of God whereby he declares repentant, believing sinners righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness alone. Again, we've seen that in detail, in depth in Romans 3, and at the heart of Romans, really, what it means to be declared righteous. We read in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Paul had made the case from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3. And then you, you come to chapter 3, verse 24, and it says we're justified freely by God's grace. And, and then you, you start counting up how many times Romans talks about justification. Just from Romans chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to Romans 5.1, 30 times justification. It's a legal term, it's a forensic term. It's God the judge uh, making a judicial act and a declaration declaring a sinful person having right standing before him, not on the basis of their own merit, they don't have any, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for them by dying in their place on the cross. Jesus bore our punishment. He took the penalty we deserved. Our sin was credited to Jesus, the sin-bearing substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So God treated Jesus as if he had sinned. He treats us as if we had obeyed with perfect obedience. That's justification. Move on with me in verse 30. The grand finale, we're, you're at the grand finale now. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you'll notice right away that it's in the past tense. It's not in the future. It's in the past tense for a future event. So glorification means being made like Jesus Christ, but we all know we're not fully glorified yet. In fact, some days we feel like we're far from it, right? But God has Paul refer to it in the the past tense, glorified. Now you'd think that he might put it in the future, right? He will glorify you think you might put it in a future passive kind of will be glorified that's my maybe what you would expect but this final step in our salvation is so certain that god refers to it as having already happened past tense glorified when we are not yet fully glorified It, it just makes me go wow god is amazing he did this to assure us That this is exactly what will happen. This is Paul in Philippians 1 verse 4 saying, I'm always praying for you Christians in Philippi. And in verse 6 saying, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He began the good work by foreknowledge and predestination and calling and justification. And because he always keeps his word, the glorification is guaranteed. It is guaranteed wow glorification the process ends with glorification paul speaks of glorification as if we're in the past using this aorist indicative to describe the goal toward which god's prior decision about his people and his calling and justification are leading them god is leading you to a glorious future god will finish the work he began no one's going to drop out of the process because of it. Because God is in control of the process, no dropouts. Think about life. People drop out of things all the time. You're in a race, a marathon, and people drop out because they get hurt or they get tired. And Some people quit their jobs. Some people quit school. Some people quit their marriage. But God will never quit on you, believer. God will never quit on you. And you will not drop out because God has you. God has you. There are no dropouts in the golden chain of salvation. No leakage. If you go through one link in the golden chain, you'll go through all the way to glorification. You are unbreakably tied to God in past foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, future glorification. Every Christian's glorification is preset as an absolute fact in the mind of God. And so with glorification, basically Paul completes this description of the movement of believers from union with Christ in his suffering to union with Christ in his glory. Five of the most important steps taken by God on behalf of his beloved. Five chains that are absolute assurance that your salvation is 100% secure. In Christ. I want you to, to look at this. Look at the repetition of the pronoun those. This is very significant. No one is lost in the process. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. No one is lost in this process. No one is lost. This tells me that you and I can get through our present suffering As God painfully, painfully sanctifies us. Because he will glorify us. As you you suffer this life, lean fully on the golden chain of salvation. It will never break. God is going to sustain you through every trial, believer. He holds you up. He loves you. He cares for you. He personally chose you. He gives you assurance of his presence. Those God foreknows and predestines to salvation, he will glorify. He has done all of this. He will do all of this. He, he's doing all of this. and He wants you to know. He wants you to know. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul prays that you may know have assurance that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Harry Ironside, great Bible teacher, told a story of an older Christian who was asked to give his testimony at a meeting. And this man got up and he told how God had sought him out and found him and called him and loved him and saved him and delivered him and forgave him and cleansed him and healed him was a great witness to the the grace and the power and the glory of God but after the meeting a rather legalistic brother took him aside and criticized his testimony he said I appreciated all that you said about what God did for you but you didn't mention anything about your part in it The man says, salvation is really part us and part God. You should have mentioned something about your part. The older Christian said, oh yes, I apologize. I really should have said something about my part. He said, my part was running away. God's part was running after me until he caught me. We've all run away. But God set his love upon us and predestined us to become like Jesus and effectively called us to faith and repentance and he will glorify us. And none of it depends on our works of righteousness. If there was one brick in the wall of salvation of our own making, it would surely crumble and fall. If one link in the golden chain of salvation were made of plastic and spray-painted gold, it would break. But this is about a believer's 100% secure salvation in Christ. For that, we praise God. And Lord, thank you that this is about your work and the absolute security you give those in Christ, which gives us full freedom to serve your purposes in our hearts, in our homes, with the church, in our neighborhood, in our office tomorrow morning, in our school classroom tomorrow, in our community, wherever you send us, wherever we live. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.